I fell into a ring of fire. I fell in. When you kiss me, fever, when you hold me tight. Fever. Welcome to Fever FM. Um, today on the day of big announcements in, in the A-League, we're going to ignore that, yell, who gives a toss, and celebrate six points on the weekend. Uh, a glorious pair of victories on the weekend. Uh, I am joined by Helena, Cam, Dave, and Dale. Hello, all. Hello. Hello, hello. A hat-trick of correct name pronunciations. <laughs> I'm on fire. Locked in. Good evening, Frosty. Did I get Cam wrong? <laughs> Pretty no, easy to it's, do. It's three weeks in a row that you've got Helena right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I do pay attention sometimes. Although, she does, if she is going to shift her allegiances uh, north of the Bombay Hills, you may have to readdress that. What well, do you mean, shift my allegiances? <laughs> that would assume that this time it's actually going to take. But... I digress. Let's move off after that cheap shot uh, and talk some uh, glorious actual football. Uh, the women playing Sydney. Uh, starting 11 changed slightly with uh, Rollo and Satchel coming in uh, and Pritchard and Clegg on the bench. I thought that was interesting. We have some other feelings about uh, Clegg being pushed to the bench? No, I don't think that was... Um... I thought it was an odd decision at the time. I think she's been a fantastic addition and uh, certainly a very creative outlet. But if you're selecting a team specifically designed around an opposition, and I'm sure she's got uh, Nat's got really valid reasons why she decided to go for Rolo instead of uh, instead of Millie. I mean, I can think of one reason. Like the Sydney backline was so cobbled together, you knew you were going to have a new centre back pairing. In that circumstance, Rolo up top is quite a logical choice, I think. Like quite a strong and physical player. It's not to say that Clegg wouldn't have done a good job, but I can see exactly why that change was made. Do you think the Ava Pritchard change, though, was more because of the lack of goals that she's had this season? It's a funny one. I'm trying to think how to put this. I've been interested that Ava has started so consistently for the two years. I just think that she's kind of a little bit stuck in between positions and isn't finding a specialty, a little bit sort of jack of all trades, master of none kind of situation. So this is something that I've been expecting to come for quite a long time. Um, but, you know, that's not to say that she's been doing a good job, but she hasn't been doing the target forward job. So No, I think that's exactly right. For a, for a team that has a lot of good attackers and has consistently played her as the target within that quite attacking lineup, the goals haven't been coming. So I, I agree with you. It's been odd to some extent that she's been stuck with for so long, despite the lack of kind of productivity in front of goal. But as you say, that doesn't mean she's been playing badly because there has been a lot to um, to praise there, but it just hasn't been goals, which out of out of your striker is kind of what you need at least some of the time, right? It hasn't been a lot of alternative options though, have there? Like if you look across the squad, are there any other sort of, Standout centre forwards. 
apart, apart from Rolo, who you've employed for that reason to be that centre forward as well, uh, no, and I agree. I think actually Ava's played some brilliant football this season, especially at times she's been quite isolated up there. So her hold-up play's actually not been particularly bad, and I, uh, I agree the goals need work. There's, there's obviously an end product there that needs to come that hasn't quite arrived yet. But I just thought it was an odd decision uh, to, to drop her at this particular stage. Obviously, everything that I'm saying needs to be contextualised by it's one of the hardest positions on the field and people never want to hear that. And I know that you're all a bunch of goalkeepers, so you're certainly not going to want to hear that. But you do a lot of industrious work with no ball and you tend to have half chances to create something. So I think in light of that, yes, she's done a good job, but I don't know. You don't necessarily always need to construct a front line around a target. There's scope to be more creative than that. And, you know, like I think this is an interesting change, an interesting point, but clearly it's, it's just in some way paid off, right? Cause they've got three points. Well, yeah, that's what I wanted to get onto. If um, I don't think we've seen a more, complete performance from this team in the full two seasons from I might be my memory last season might be a bit blurry but um, I was just recapping it going over the um, the numbers for the whole team every single player got a um, favorable rating according to football app um, versus say Sydney it's like it's very nice to see greens across the board is was it um I, I was just thinking that for me there was only really one outstanding player, and that was um, uh, was uh, Foster. But apart from that, everyone had a really good, solid game. I want to single out Chloe Knott, who has always had the potential to step into what she's stepping into now, which is a kind of very calming general on the field. When she used to come home from Georgetown and come to some trainings like in July, August at Forest Hill, that was the experience of playing with Chloe was that she just solved every issue on the pitch. And I haven't really seen her do that for the Phoenix until this week. I mean, like I say, I hate statistics, but her statistics were phenomenal. Like 100% productive dribble completion, 96% jewels won or something like that. Like just incredible statistics. And she just did what she needed to do. And was where she needed to be, and took the Sydney front six kind of out of the equation. And I, you know, I think she hasn't been in the team of the week or anything. But I just thought that she was outstanding. I think she was a little unlucky not to be in the team of the week for just the reasons you're pointing out there. I thought she had an absolute blinder, and I had to agree with um, Frosty. Whilst um, also Michaela Foster was obviously the, the standout player in that particular game, and has been you know, a standout this season. There are others that have put their hands up in there. The reason why we had three uh, members of our defensive line sitting in that uh, in that um, uh, team of the week and we're unlucky not to have a couple more players in there as well. Yeah, should we uh, go through that um, the game itself? Uh, Bree Edwards um, continuing her fine form, nice, uh, good early save, very athletic. She's not the tallest of players, but getting up there and making sure... Is is this now at the point where we're questioning who's the number number one uh, keeper for the, this team? I think you'd be hard pressed to drop Bree if Lily came back next week. Um, 
only because you're this deep into the season and Lee has absolutely no match fitness whatsoever. So I think it would be going off current performances as well, a disservice to Bree to drop her. Um, it's a very straight back, Cam. Whether you are questioning whether she is now a better keeper than Lily, I think that's an entirely different question, um, but one that you probably can't answer until Lily is back up to match fitness and you know they're both in a position to be fighting for that uh, number one spot on a regular basis. I think what we're finding is... is how much consistent game time helps, particularly for keepers, and, and also a bit to, for centre-backs as well. You know, you don't get the, the 5, 10, 20 minutes on the end to, to, to get into games, to get up to speed. It's it's all or nothing, really. She looked a little bit shaky, you know, towards the start of the season, and, and she does still have some deficiencies in terms of, you know, crossing, but, you know, that's not uncommon um, in the A-League um, and, and on the women's side because she doesn't have that, that height to kind of tower above defenders um, and, and attackers but yeah I think as, as she's got more time um, she's got more confident you can definitely hear her talking more demanding mm. instructing players around the field all that starting to come together and and that I think that's just due to you know consistent game time and as Cam said I think you know if Lily's back next week I don't think her form says that she should go back to reserve keeper I think you know she holds that until she's you know underperforming and at this stage I don't think you can say that I was very impressed with that the defensive six, and I'm struggling to remember when we've really that the two defensive midfield positions where we've had out and out defensive midfielders playing there. Um, we had Kate Taylor playing there previously, um, who, while a very good player, that's not her natural fit. But getting getting um, Wisniewski and not in there to hold, I think made a hell of a difference to that that. Um, backline it just didn't feel like they were ever scrambling and just allowed the center backs to play a, a straight line and that was it vindication for the, the the starting midfield three that cam and i both put forward yep. last podcast i would say okay. and the other thing is that they've they've clearly got that chemistry going now because they were rotating really well to fill spaces one would step one would drop and cover one would cover the ball one would cover the passing lane which sounds like basic stuff and it to an extent is basic stuff but it if you're if you're nailing that it's just the foundation that the rest of the team can build on. And I think that's what we saw. Like Foster was released to do what she does because the midfield was so dominant. I have to agree. And um, I also think one of the keys there is that because they're now finding that relationship, they've freed up Betsy Hassett more. Whereas Hassett was literally doing a 6-8 and trying to be a 10 at the same time for large stretches of the season because I think she felt the responsibility of being that experienced head within that very inexperienced team. Whereas, as you say, now the relationships are there. There really is so much. We're getting more out of Betsy Hassett as a player, especially further forward, because she's like trusting in the other sixes and eights around her. Yeah, yeah just on Betsy Hassett, I, I looked at um, the heat maps that are on the, on the Keep Up website, and her one is just like everywhere. Like she is just all over the place and everyone has their little pockets and you have to click on her and it goes woof. Like, so she's clearly getting around the field and having that more f- sort of a- advanced freedom um, is, is kind of bringing her into the game a lot more than when she was kind of needing to stay more central and more sort of towards halfway. Yeah, I'm wondering as well if this might be partially like a symptom of just how short the season is for the women. I mean, you, you don't really get a significant preseason. You don't have a long season itself. And so trying to get some of those those things you would normally try and get gelling 
during a preseason, you really don't get the opportunity. You kind of, you have to use almost the first like five or six rounds to do some of that in this league. And I, I wonder if what we're seeing now is what, if you had a longer preseason and could play some quality opposition during that preseason, you might've figured out then, or at least the first couple of rounds. Um, And I think, We've always seen it with the Phoenix as well, where they struggle on the men's side to get quality games into that preseason. I imagine that problem's doubly hard for the women as well. Um, short preseason anyway, difficulty with traveling, cost of traveling, attracting opposition over here. Like it's all it's all very hard. Um, so that might just be a thing we've got to learn to live with as, as the Phoenix women's side is how we manage that preseason and getting those combinations gelling quicker without a without a full preseason and without those um, opportunities to figure it out during a preseason. It's, it's an interesting point you raise because this is this is a long season for what was the W League or is now the A League women. Yeah. This is it, it used to be so much shorter and it is such a feature of I've talked about it before in the context of the New Zealand National League it's such a a feature of the women's game because what is happening yeah. is you don't have a fully professionalized system so you need to fit in with players schedules and so you have the NPL and our Premier League Central League whatever it is that necessarily constricts the window for, for the women to have this competition and that that's something that's so systemic it's going to be so hard to fix but it's just you know some I hear you say it's such a short season and my first reaction was like well it's way longer now though yeah and you're right it is it's better than it was. And I think, you know, even, even the women's national league here, right. We see some of those problems starting to be solved with moving towards club-based teams rather than franchises. And, and we do see some of that um, resolving itself, but even, even with the, the, you know, the A-League, uh, the, yeah, the A-League woman season getting longer, it still is a pretty short season. And particularly the amount of time that Nat had these players for, was really short you know you compare that to when the when the men show up for preseason it's basically nothing it's a it's a blink of the eye if Ufi only had his players that long he'd be spewing yeah I mean you do wonder what the off season which in the A-League women context is most of the calendar year you do wonder what that holds for the playing group because you'd probably expect that someone like Betsy Hassett, I mean, World Cup aside, taking that out of the equation, you'd probably expect that that players of Betsy, Betsy Hassett's calibre are probably going to go back overseas and play like a staggered professional year. But then there's going to be a whole lot of players, like I'm thinking Chloe Knotts, etc. I don't know what they do in off-season. And maybe it's, maybe it's thinking somewhat laterally about creating an environment through the winter – I don't know if it's if it's in the Premier League if that's going to work, but some way to have these players like not just completely forget everything for ten months and then have to really quickly have a three month window where they're just on on on. Well, see, I think the academy longer term the academy is going to provide some kind of pathway there for the women as well, but that's obviously just in its infancy and still coming through. So I actually think it's more likely that we see these women go back to their local clubs and. Obviously, they're going to need to keep match fit. There's a World Cup coming up, and I'm assuming some of them at least are going to be in, the sh- in with a shout of some football at, s- uh, at some point around that World Cup. So they're going to have to keep playing. The season is over for the women in, what, three weeks' time? They'll be done in three weeks' time because they're not going to make the playoffs. So, you know, there's there's a good two to three months there they need to fill in with football. So I think we see them back at your Forest Hills and your Wellington Uniteds. And I think I think genuinely believe that's where they all go. 
I'd like to take a moment to say rest in peace for us too, because it actually no longer exists. It's very sad. Um, but the other thing is, like the the leagues that make sense internationally for them to go to if they wanted to leave and play a staggered season, like the NWSL is probably the one that timeline wise is the best partner to the A leagues, and it's the one that's the hardest to get into as an international player because of the restrictions on international spots for rosters. You know, so we're kind of dealing with like a whole system that is not set up to let teams gel, which is so disappointing because like we've just been talking about in this game, it was the gel that was the difference. I'm going to bring it back to the game because uh, we keep going down into the deep dive of uh, of uh, women's football. And I think this is an occasion where we don't want to because uh, um, not long after the uh, Edward save, there was a good little break from Satchel and more importantly, a go-ahead goal. It was a bit of a scramble in there, but let's give credit where it's due. That was one hell of a volley. Yeah, the finish is incredible. Like, really hard to execute. Yep, if you haven't seen it, go and watch this. About a thigh-high left-footed volley, I think, Um, and just just cracked, nice and clean. That's as good as any striker you'd see, I think. Yeah, one of those ones that's easy to, to blast, you know, well over the top or, or shank because it's in that kind of very uncomfortable distance away from you. You kind of have to really finish, I mean, from a centre back. I mean, whew. She set herself, got a knee over the ball, hit through the centre of the ball with her laces. It's textbook. And you actually witnessed her constructing a textbook volley. Not just instinct. You also mentioned, Frosty, that it was scrappy. Um, pretty much... The majority of our goals this season have come from exactly the situation that that yes. was in. Chaos ball. Um, it's something the commentators mentioned. Yeah, it's, co- it's caused by Michaela Foster, whose delivery is FedEx-like every single time. No, and FedEx are awful, mate. Do, do no, they are literally one. the number one ranked international delivery company. So He's got that stat <laughs> on the lock, ready yeah, to go. It is there. Are we sp- are we sponsored by them, Cam? Have you have you organised some? Oh, I'd like to be. I'd really really like to be. be cool. Thanks, FedEx. Yeah. So the the point is though, I, we can call it scrappy, but we're doing it every single game, and we're scoring goals from this, which is that's tactics area, that's played for area. So I'm 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 loath to say it's a scrappy goal because we're playing the, the tactically to get that in there and score those goals. I will now work in that I 100% predicted the entire outcome of this game, including the mechanism of the goal scoring. And it was partly a product that you had this makeshift sitting back line because what I would say is as good as Michaela Foster's delivery is, which is, it's remarkable. What I would say is that it was really poorly defended. Yeah, it wasn't. It, lines weren't cleared, but um, as the commentator alluded to, uh, the, the Phoenix women's team is a set-piece specialist team now, which is... It weirds me out to say that any Nick side is going to be a set piece specialist, but there it is. I mean, I, have we scored two goals from open play? There's at least a couple in that Canberra game. Oh, yeah, that Canberra game. There were like three, I oh, think. Oh, yeah, true. Yeah. But that was a, I mean, that was Let, a very strange Let's just game. put that to one side. But yeah, it, it's nice to see putting pressure on set piece, right? I mean, in the women's game, it's like such a point of difference if you can be a team that scores from set pieces. Because honestly, in the international club scene, there aren't that many women's club sides that you would say are set piece specialists. Part of that's a reflection of the physicality of and the way that the women's game is played. But it, it is quite rare. Oh, sorry. I was just reading Dave's stat on how Cam was completely wrong about... Um... Fact check. Yeah. 
Because that's how no, we... I actually I did actually, I actually googled it before I came up and it came back with FedEx. So we're looking at different uh, different things. So I'm going to find my link. That's the bit you research is your metaphor. It's kind of private public debate, so I think we should not weed into it. I just I just want to unpack the fact that Cam has now admitted he came up with that line before the podcast and Googled it. <laughs> Are you kidding? I tweeted it. That's so embarrassing. On the day. I tweeted it on the day after looking it up that FedEx was the number one deliver, uh, worldwide delivery company and then said we should be calling her FedEx because her delivery is so consistent. Yeah. Awesome. You've been workshopping it for five days. And and it's still wrong. The thing sells itself. <laughs> it might not be correct. It may not be correct, but it still sells itself. <laughs> Your workshop methodology lacks. Do you know the last time I, I, I had a requirement for a workshop methodology was at like 25 years ago, so I'm not apologizing for that. I think you're paid by FedEx. <laughs> I'd love to be paid by FedEx, thanks. <laughs> Yeah. Are we getting paid per mention? I hope so. <laughs> I really do. Anyone want to work in there? How amazing their logo is as well, Cam? No, I'm okay, man. They don't pay me that much. Oh, you see, I've had a dis. <laughs> Shall I mock up an invoice and send it to them and see if we get in? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who are you going to use to deliver it? <laughs> you should go to UPS, UPS. man. Those motherfuckers are great. <laughs> Apparently, the UPS is the best delivery service. <laughs> no, they threw a package of mine under a caravan, so I'm not having that. I'm sure if I send an invoice to invoice at FedEx.com, someone will pick it up. Yeah. It just might not be the right someone. Quality hosting, Frosty. You tried to get us to not do this, and you failed spectacularly. Miserably. Absolutely miserably. You need to be getting us back on track, mate. After that detour through the US postal system. Courier system. Come on, let's be specific. Uh, back on track. Come on. Uh, this was actually a good game, and you bastards are ruining it for me. The reliving it. Uh, so Rolo uh, getting a hit on a ball as well. That that was. It's good to see something ha- happening um, uh, from a corner. That I don't want to call it clean because then you'll take umbrage with me. But getting getting hit on the ball rather than it being second phase. I thought that that was a really positive sign that we were able to start making a bit more headway with um, with Foster's delivery. Forgive the pun, sorry. And speaking of deliveries... <laughs> <laughs> speaking of delivery... And delivery easy. our sponsor. Yeah. If, if we're going to go to one, please be at Deliver Easy. A, a couple of friends of mine work there. Um, uh, after that... Chronism. Looking after your friends, Helena. Try it. Nah. That was funny. There's, there's a reason why you're sitting here talking to four old men right now. Oh. <laughs> Fucking hell, mate. Jesus Christ. Because you picked me to make you relevant. Yeah, no. There we go. That's, yeah, that's great. Better. That's better. Um, I'm, I'm getting a lot of pleasure out of her pulling strips off you, mate. I really am. <laughs> oh, you've been trying for so long. Someone's got oh, to. Oh, don't claim to be as smart. <laughs> oh, good. That, that would be a safe bet. Um, Bree Edwards um, managed to crack another nice save, this time off uh, Abini. Uh, was a bit of a speculative shot, but still a good piece of um, work by Bree. Uh I, it's one thing I, I've thought she's grown into is 
her, you do see keepers at this level in the A-League, both men and women, give the odd little howler or fluff their lines a little bit. But what I've been impressed with Brie is she's kind of moved, she's progressed, got better, and hasn't really produced those howlers. She's been really consistent. She's grown out of a Jack Duncan era. <laughs> well, there's a lot of there's a lot of keepers in the leagues in Australasia who have For not example, grown that. Jack Duncan. Yep. Jack Duncan, Ollie Sale, every <laughs> other keeper. And you know, some great keepers in the A League of Women have had some just unbelievable mistakes. Like Annalie Grove basically just mistrapping the ball rolls into her own net. So the fact that the Phoenix don't give up a goal a game through really basic errors is actually more of an achievement than than it should be in the context of the league. And Bree's handling's been really good. Like that Abini shot that you just mentioned, it had some pace on it. Mm. S- complete hold, none of that like drop and catch thing, just you know, very clean. Yep. Yeah. Uh- Princess can really hit the ball. She's, she doesn't fluff around. One of the great subs I was, I was really interested to see what happened was um, Millie Clegg being brought on, especially after Satchel had had it such a good game till that point. She didn't look like she was um, doing anything but putting her foot on the on the gas. That was uh, I was pleased to see that. I was interested to see her kind of play a little more right-sided too. I mean, she's going to be double-sided at- is is her career trajectory, but it's very interesting watching her work in terms of when sometimes she'd back herself more down the line this game than that traditional cut in that we've become slightly more familiar with. And, you know, that the phases of play where she didn't give up on a ball that the fullback had given up on, like all of that stuff is very good to see. Yeah, I, I must admit there was um, one on the other side where uh, Mickey Robertson uh, just went the outside. I can't remember who she was up against, but it was uh, a very tall, well, seemed very tall Sydney defender and just went past her like she was standing still. Just blurrively. It's ridiculous how fast she is, considering her stride must be about eight inches long. That was honestly insane. Very. She was unlucky her finish wasn't better, actually, because that would have made a, a very nice goal. The, the pace. She, the defender had a 10-metre head start on it. Yeah. Just, just went round her and just like nothing. It was it was good to see, especially a, a, a local lass as well. I, what I was surprised about was that the Knicks didn't they they weren't trying to defend a one goal lead. They weren't trying to close up shop, as we've been rather critical of the men's team for doing on more than one occasion. But I was quite surprised that they played as open as they did. Was is that just me, or was everyone else kind of feeling? interested at the end of the game no I, I i think the best performances they've had this season have been ones where they've just gone all game with the the canberra game and the brisbane game being the two that stand out the most in my mind um where they have they didn't stop for the 90 they pressed and pressed and pressed and they showed a fantastic level of fitness uh to to have the same kind of energy at 90 minutes as I did in the first so it doesn't surprise me at all that they're trying to score that second goal or that third goal all the way through 90 minutes no matter who they're playing I also think that they would have lost had they not done it because Sydney's not a team that you can sit deep against I mean Courtney Vine alone will eventually find a way to hurt you she just but she didn't 
as impressive as she is. Well, I mean, let's talk about why she didn't hurt us, which is that Brie Edwards made a world-class save. Mm, That is very true. That was a cracking save. The look on Vine's face, oh, I I could just watch that all day. was brilliant. Arguably, Hawksby should have a bit more quality and be bending that into the outside of the goal. I don't... But the the aggression from Edwards, to, like that was a real do or die moment, and it saved the result for the Phoenix. But you know that was a classic example of Courtney Vine skipped past three defenders like they weren't there. I, I think it's still testament to a very good defensive performance when you can keep Courtney Vine basically quiet for eighty minutes. It is exceptional. Her pace alone, if she gets even two steps going in. Uh, into a taking on a defender, she, she skips past people very easily. I'm quite surprised she still, you know, she doesn't travel further afield at a higher level. Um, I would say this is probably her last season in the A leagues. The thing about Courtney Vine is it's actually she's 24, but it's actually only the last few seasons that she's really kind of broken out. She was in the junior Matilda system, but just you know was one of those players that kind of was in and around and has only recently just really found this mercurial kind of brilliance. But I, I think you're right. I don't think we'll see her in the A-Leagues for much longer. Yeah, in fairness, I've only seen her the last two seasons. So there's that. Um, as is becoming a bit of a next tradition, um, scoring late and that getting chalked off. Uh, are we getting get into a flame war whether McMeekin was offside? I think she was. Um, I don't think, I think it was tighter than what it looked because the ball came from the right-hand side and there was a, a covering defender over there, who I think you sort of go back and, and look at the replay, doesn't necessarily plays her on, but is very much closer than the, the central defenders. So while it looked pretty obvious from the middle of the pitch, that defender kind of made it a bit closer, but it did look, it looked um, from a very wide angle, very grainy, distanced angle. Um, it did look look like it was offside. Yeah, you're certainly not going to complain if you, you if you keep that one nil win anyway. So uh, I think that that probably, uh, if it had been one nil the other way, there might have been questions. Um, so a momentous victory uh, against a, a depleted Sydney side, but still a pretty good team. Let's not let's be honest. Um, this kind of sets up uh, the rest of the season for the Knicks women. They've got a couple of games that really should be targeting based on that. Getting, you know, getting off the foot of the ladder seems to be possible, isn't it? You're giving me blank looks, like. Mm. I think it's certainly possible, but I mean, it's it's a long way, um, yeah, to to get anything more than second to bottom. I mean, getting off the bottom, I think, is is one point away, and you've got a game in hand over them, but you're still six or seven points, I think, behind. The next team after that so it's um it's quite a big ask to get anything more obviously it'd be a huge confidence boost not to wooden spoon it um and i think that's something they'll absolutely be targeting but every game is is tough points at the moment obviously sydney as um helena had kind of pointed out we're, we're there for the taking and we took full advantage of it but there's no easy games for us coming up the fact that you're talking about not just getting off the bottom of the ladder but who who's after that i i find very positive uh, I'd be very disappointed if we don't catch Newcastle because looking at their form, they haven't scored in the last six games and they've taken a couple of absolute poundings. Um, 4-0 last week, 6-0 the week before, 4-0 the week before that. So they 
have lost eight in a row, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight in a row. That and is quite the trajectory. They haven't, haven't scored in the last six. So, oh no, sorry, they have won, won a game in the middle there. Sorry, I do lie. I must, uh, must remember they beat Western United. But given our f- recent sort of tick up and their sort of, I mean, drop off, um, and we've got two two games in hand, I think, over them. One, if we can't, one game in hand. One game. If we can't pick up one more point, then they might be pretty disappointed considering we also play them um, as well. Uh, that's very important. Those, uh, I God, I'm going to say it, those six pointers, which is a very nice segue into the next one, uh, the men's game versus Sydney, which is a bit of a six-pointer. Uh, the uh, Knicks being in fifth, uh, just ahead of Sydney on sixth. Um, I think it was one point before we started. So getting a win here really gets a stretch on over Sydney, or it would mean that Sydney would overtake us and go into fifth. Um, this is a big game, gents. Um, Sydney just starting to find a bit of form after a very rocky start to the season, hopefully saving Ufi uh, from having to contemplate going back to Sydney prematurely. Yeah, I think they were unbeaten in six, I think, before this game. I think it was six. Uh, but I think some of those, some of those victories, I think two of them might have been against victory. I think, and some of them were yeah. very. Um, their, their their five match or their their four matches of form before that was two wins, a loss, and a draw. Ah, oh, okay. Well, shows what I know. Well, they'd still turned it around because they were sitting, I think, seventh or eight. They were sitting outside the seven. They were sorry, it's outside the six. They were like they 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 have been on a good run of form, if not quite as good as we were thinking there um an unchanged lineup for the knicks um this wasn't too surprising um going okay at the moment uh no sam sutton still out i believe uh leg injury uh, joss laws and costa barbarusis on the bench of note um that wasn't too surprising i don't think was it no that won the previous week, so you can understand why he wanted to stay with the same lineup. How did we feel we started this? I had I have mixed feelings, and I've rewatched it again. And the the first half, bar the goal, I'm still trying to get my head around. I think watching again is actually a little bit masochistic, there, buddy, because um, that was uh... scratchy. Sure. I'd like to frame it as an incredibly solid defensive effort because we didn't see a hell of a lot of ball. Um, And obviously uh, Sydney hit the post uh, fairly early on. They had a lot of the the territory. We were were pinned down in the back, back third for long stretches of that game. So... In my positive mindset, I'm going to frame that as uh, defensively, we were incredibly sound. Yeah, I watched it on replay. So I thought the first half, I mean, they had a decent amount of ball, but it was a lot. Again, it was that kind of U-shape, you know, along the back line, not really penetrating. They had that maybe one good chance from Mac, like 10 or 15 minutes in. But even looking back on the replay, I'm pretty sure there was an offside in the lead-up, so it might even be called back if it, if it went in. But they had a, probably a slight bit more of the ball. When we did get the ball under control, we looked to knock it around well, and we created a couple of chances when we had long periods of possession towards the second, later part of that first half. And then obviously in the, in the second half, it, it kind of 
tacked towards more more Sydney possession. But yeah, I thought the the first half I thought was reasonably even, even if they had slightly more possession. Yeah, and I think the stat for me that that tells the story here the most is even though they had possession and lots of the other stats are in their favour, they had 17 shots to nine, which sounds like, you know, lots more chances. But the telling stat is it was three shots on target to two shots on target across the entire 90 minutes. You know, they had a lot of ball, but they weren't really doing a lot that was that dangerous with it. You know, there were a couple of chances and, and Ollie made some decent saves in there, but for their 17 to nine advantage there, it ends up three to two on target. So I think that for me is why this felt um, tense and, and we were under pressure, but it, it also didn't feel that dangerous either. Yeah. And like all their chances, like I think almost all of them were outside the box. Like we, we held our box well and, and we kept them out. And I think it frustrated them. And I think you saw as the second half wore on, all they had was kind of pop shots from random distance, hoisting balls into the box and hoping for something to happen. I think they completely lost they just really lacked some creative um, creativity in there and and maybe that's because we defended well um, but yeah th- their chances were, were very low percentage chances I'm going to put a lot of that actually into Roofs Roofs and Jugakovic through central midfield is providing a screen so the defensive four who were busy weren't incredibly overworked and under pressure all the time because they there was that uh, relieving pressure or that um, screen in front to allow them a little more time and space. I'm I'm going to take this the point that you guys were making about um, the lack of uh, big chances um, to just underline how bloody nice it is to have a centre forward for the Knicks who takes those opportunities. He, he you know he only gets a couple every game, but Zawada man, he has been coming up with some really, really needed goals when we need them to. Is there any chance this guy's going to be able to continue this for the rest of the season? Because I can't see a way he isn't, but I also can't imagine a world where the Knicks have a striker that's just scoring needed goals. Well, he's probably not going to score this weekend. Yeah, and it's going to be an off-field distraction. I'm pretty sure he's not going to play. He's in a good, he's in a good run. Uh, and some, at some point, it'll, it'll stop. Um, let's just hope it's uh, in the off-season. I mean, the, the reality is it's better than just a good run. Across his pretty much his entire like professional career to this point, he's only scored about 12 goals. And then he turns up and does 12 for us. I think it's uh, looking at it, his highest previous season was six goals. Since then, he's had one goal, one goal, zero goals, three goals. Then he hits 12 it's you know if those if those figures on wikipedia are correct he's he's having more than just a, a you know a golden patch this is this is you know best form of his career stuff and great for us also suggests given the type of player that he is also suggests that there's something about the next playing system that is contributing to his success which i don't i mean i don't know what what that might be whether it's the delivery from wide areas that yep yeah I agree. No, I think that's exactly it. I think it's the delivery from wide areas and because you've got good fullbacks delivering those balls, it's creating those opportunities for him. Yeah, he's also mentioned a couple of times that, that again, the con- con- consistent run of games and minutes has really helped him. And I, and I can see, you know, playing in Europe, how it might be cutthroat, you know, if he hadn't scored. You know, he didn't score for the first five or six games. You could see if, if this was an, a, a, you know, a European side that, you know, you've got a deep squad of, you know, you've probably got four backup centre forwards that 
your next cab would be, you know, starting. So the the fact that, you know, you, you play with a fairly slim squad here, um, you've invested money to get a player all the way over here that you kind of invested in him that you give him a bit longer and, and you know, if it's obviously paying off for him. Yeah, and I, I would say it's testament as well to a thing we've talked about with Ufi before, right, is it's just his strike rate there. Yep. There is something about his scouting, you know. You look at this guy's record and most people don't see an out-and-out out nine target man there. You know, he's, he's got some of the physical attributes, but his playing record wouldn't suggest you've got a 10-goal-a-season striker there. But it turns out he has, and, and Ufi's getting that out of him. So um, I think it's it's a real testament to being able, through whatever scouting and, and analysis he's doing, picking exactly what he wanted and getting the right performance out of the guy. It's um, Yeah, it's great. I think one of the other benefits, I hate to... Um to be a bit negative about this, is it? it's covered a, a bit of um, David Ball. While he's been industrious, I, I, this game I was really struggling to see positive signs from him. He was running around a lot, but his passing was erratic. He just doesn't seem quite the player that he has been of um, previous seasons. For me, this was a blip. I, I agree. I think Ball was not good this game. But I think it's been very rare we've seen that. Um, you know, he did he did seem um, just not to be able to get into this one. Every time he touched the ball, he seemed to be giving it away. Um, but I don't I don't think we've seen that from him before. He's always working hard, and it usually is um, at least productive in retaining possession and good areas and that kind of stuff. But that we didn't see that this game. For me, I put it down to he just had a bad day at the office. Hmm. I, I it does feel like it's more noticeable when you've got. Um guys who are mercurial like like Sass who can play great one game but then if go a little bit missing the next is it puts a lot more pressure on Zawada and Ball and I yeah I, I think possibly even though Zawada was playing so well and he has been consistent with that it, when Ball didn't play well it was a little more obvious maybe yeah and I think as well it was interesting that that Ball doesn't play 90 here um, Kraev, who's been reasonably good all season, is the one who gets dragged. Not Borley, who I think we all could see wasn't having the best game. Obviously, the, there's slightly different reasons for that. But I, yeah, Borley doesn't often see out the 90 and, and did this time, which um, is interesting in itself. Yeah, well, Ufi said in the post-match, and he actually singled out Kraev and said he didn't have a particularly good game with or without the ball. Um, and he doesn't normally say that, so obviously he wasn't particularly happy and I, and I, to be fair, I, I can't remember much contribution of note from Crave either. And I, I think it, it, it's going a little bit towards that you know, that conversation we had maybe a month ago, where Zawada was in that in the middle of that form, and we started to only sort of just hoist some some crosses into him, and that became our kind of default option. I'm kind of wondering whether, you know, without Lewis in there to create a bit more, you know, dangerous passing or slightly different. You know, angle of attack. We've we've kind of slowly resorted back to kind of you know using him as a target man, and, and the other other players who you know can be creative or get goals, kind of you know just get less less involved. I suspect it's a bit of that, but I um when I heard that uh, that um what have you said? I re- um kind of recalled the when we interviewed him at the beginning of the season, and he kind of called out Clayton Lewis and said it kind of something similar just basically said you know he hasn't been doing what i think he should be doing and i wonder whether this was trying to spur cry on a bit 
uh, whether this is kind of an oofy thing to kind of like try to get the more out of someone rather than just a critical assessment. Yeah, although I think he said uh, he said something about yeah you know, wanting to bring Costron to yeah you know, be able to run off Zawada a bit more, and because you know at that point we're starting to get camped in our in our defensive half um, a lot a lot more in that second half. So um, obviously it didn't really work out that way because we still didn't get much ball and, and Zawada looked fairly isolated most of that second half. So maybe it's just slightly a change of a slightly different player uh, for the circumstances that we were in. We've seen uh, Costa play that uh, little man to big man uh, in mainly the all-whites, and he's looked reasonably effective. He he doesn't seem to have found that link as yet with Zawada. No. I mean, I, I, I think he, in some ways, has just been struggling with his own form. I don't know that it's necessarily a Zawada issue. I will say in this one, though, we saw him, we saw him doing a bit more... Um, defensive work than we've seen previously like to, towards the death there he was dropping in um, defending like he like he really cared about it which was was good to see because I think he has been criticized uh, by some people in the past for kind of not looking like he cared like he was just a bit over it um, you know just going through the motions rather than than you know fighting for it um, so obviously we still haven't seen that kind of um, productivity up front from him in a while but it did, it did look like he was out there fighting to put in a performance. And, and at that stage of the game, the performance needed to be all hands to, to the, you know, the grindstone to, to keep that result. And he chipped in um, admirably, I thought. Um, but we're still not seeing that form up front from him. Uh, but I don't think this was the game where you were going to. No. Um, as you guys alluded to um, previously, the game kind of got pushed into our back third a little more uh, we saw Ufi uh, withdraw uh, Sass and bring on Laws for that back three again uh, Ufi's kind of said that he doesn't like this tactic but sometimes needs must it still looks pretty solid though as much as he doesn't like it is this just because it was against this Sydney side is this a, maybe a tactic that won't work against uh, other other sides I find that to be an interesting comment because this Phoenix side is quite good at parking the bus and locking down the box. Ooh, is it? We go to it a lot, but up to the last couple of games, have we been particularly successful? This is my composite point. I think that for a team that goes to sitting deep so often, which I just think is a low percentage style of football, actually, like if you're doing every game, you're going to lose a lot. But I it interests me that he would say that he's it's a needs must scenario because I see they do it a lot, and I think they actually are complete. To be completely honest, they are quite good at controlling the the box. That doesn't mean that they don't lose games. It doesn't mean they don't concede. But it just interests me that it's being cast as like a well, it's not our way of playing, but I guess we'll do it kind of thing. Yeah, and I think as well, like as we're saying, we've seen Ufi um, get the side to do this a lot. And I think, I think as fans, if we are going to try and park the bus, I think we'd rather see us actually try and park the bus. So you know, taking off an attacking player and bringing on another defender and and just leaning into the tactic makes more sense to me when I'm watching. You're holding a one nil lead and you're going, you know what? Actually, we're going to park the bus. Whereas when we try and do it without the change. It makes less sense to me, I guess. Like it, it obviously can be done, and we we have the personnel that it can work. But if we're going to try and park the bus for half an hour, 
I'd rather we put the personnel on the field to park a bus than leave all our, our strikers out there. Like it, it, the, the kind of dichotomy of doing both at the same time doesn't necessarily make sense to me. So it is interesting that Ufi's saying he doesn't like doing it that way. You know, he obviously is quite happy to, to ask the guys to try and, you know, play a bit more defensively, sit a bit deeper, defend, but he doesn't like giving them an extra man to do it with. So he obviously wants to keep that attacking option and that attacking threat open to them and have the other team worrying about that while also asking the defense to do a lot of work. But the 20 points we've dropped from winning positions this season would indicate that the more pragmatic approach of throwing on laws like we did in this game, where we have actually been very defensively sound, is the better approach. Yeah, I mean, that that has only been a, kind of an option, I guess, for the last few weeks with having Wooten, Laws and Payne all available where you can do it. So maybe that's why he hadn't resorted to that prior. Well, he did it. He did it in uh, Palmerston North against Perth uh, when we went down to ten, and he brought on um, uh, Sermon and dropped Roofer further back. So not quite the same, obviously, but uh, it was certainly the same kind of shape. So I think it's more a decision that he's come to in recent time that it is the right way to go when he wishes to hold those leads. It, I mean, it certainly proved effective this time. Um, I, I, I think, Dale, you mentioned that the, it didn't feel like they had big, any kind of big chances. Dave, you mentioned they had three shots on target. Ollie made one save. In the second half, he made a very, very good save. Um, but in the end, it was actually fairly, uh, fairly uh, towards him. He didn't have to make too much of a dive, but it was hit with a bit of venom. And they had a follow-up shot which went just wide of the post. In the first half, they hit the post from that first-time sweeping shot from the edge of the box. But that is basically it. They they haven't had, or Ollie hasn't had anything else that he's had to do on a saving basis. Obviously, there's a lot of work in the box he's needed to do, a lot of marshalling, a lot of collecting and gathering, but there's been no massive, massive threat outside those opportunities. Uh, One moment of controversy that might have... uh swung the game uh, against the Knicks. Uh, the 63rd minute, um, I can't remember who the def- the attacker was. Was it Mac? Uh, coming in from the left, he's kind of chopped back. Uh, Tim Payne has hung out a leg, and the Sydney attacker has gone down. Um, we've just had a quick discussion about this in, in some downtime, and there are some differing opinions about how how close that was to being given a penalty. Dale, why don't you kind of kick this one off? Yeah, I mean, I don't think... I think the only thing that's, I mean, says pain is I think Lolly is kind of jumping before the tackle kind of comes in. He's kind of jumping over his planted leg, but then pain kind of pulls it back out, and so there's actually no contact. But, you know, you can still foul someone without touching them. Uh, you know, the laws of the game do say, you know, you know, trip or attempt to trip a player. It wouldn't have surprised me if he'd called it a pen and then it didn't get overturned. Um, I think it's one of those ones where it, it kind of... It wouldn't have been an obvious error either way, and so that I don't think VAR would have overturned it. But, yeah, I think he was pretty lucky because uh, I think another kind of split second that Payne leaves his leg in there, I think there's contact, and then it, yeah, I think it's definitely a penalty. Yeah, I, I yeah. couldn't tell if there was contact, 
but certainly the way he left his leg, and I don't think it was an attempt to trip. I think he was just trying to make contact with the ball, but he did not get ball at all. I just couldn't tell whether he made contact with the attacker. No, none. There's no contact there with the attacker. Yes, he left his leg out to try and get the ball, but as soon as he didn't, he's pulled his leg away. The defender is looking. Sorry, the striker is looking for it. He throws himself to the ground for it before there's ever any contact. There was no contact. There was no call. So uh, this is one of the few times I think Chris Beath actually got it right. If he just continued running, I think he would have. He would have got. He would have got the contact. But because he yeah. kind of does a little hop, yeah. it. it it, it means he's kind of passing to pain at his thigh level rather than leg level, and so by the time he pulls it out, it's fine. Yeah, if he, uh, if, he, if he hadn't been looking for it, he would have probably got it. But because he's looking for it, because he's putting himself, throwing himself to the ground, the, guy, it, 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 the legs didn't get to where Tim Payne's leg was. I don't think he's throwing himself to the ground at all. I think he's trying to jump over the leg. I, I think he is trying to avoid the contact, and, and a foul can still be given for that. Um, I, I like. I don't think this is necessarily a pen, but I think we've seen softer pens given and upheld on VAR than this. Yeah, VAR's gutless. Though, that's why. I, I think. I think there's whether or not there's contact on the leg. There certainly is contact more up around the chest level. Um, there, there is there is some body contact between the two players, and and that alone could be enough to give a penalty based on. Um, Helena, do you have an attacker's opinion on this? I've given you an attacker's opinion. No. <laughs> I actually, I offer no opinion. I have no fear. It's just fun to listen to other people argue. <laughs> yeah, There's I. the lawyer I, coming out on you. Yeah, no one's paying you, so no opinion yeah. is rendered. Um, Sorry, what was that? No one's paying me. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, it's been fun. <laughs> paying you and paying you in uh, rainbow fever badges. Thank you. <laughs> we'll pay um, you double what we get paid. Yeah. <laughs> uh, shall we. Um, move on to the um, future fixtures because I'm hoping that it's the end of this the chat we needed about the Sydney game um, the men have a an, a big game another big game uh, this time against Adelaide on Friday night uh, no Ben Halloran for Adelaide and Oscar Zawada may be out according to stuff um, but one positive is that uh, Clayton Lewis has travelled with the team uh, after his fractured kneecap. That is very surprising, but he did come back quite quickly after his previous leg injury. How do we see this one going? Is this going to be another Friday night fright or fight? Yeah, games against Adelaide have been good this season, actually. But we so, don't tend to get the results. Not in Adelaide, no. But the two games we have played against them this season have been decent watches, have been good games. So... I think it could could we have a chance. I think our, our record in Adelaide is four wins, four draws out of twenty three games. So um, that's not a great great record in Adelaide or um, in, a, in a decent amount of form. Um, and I think it's probably about ninety five percent chance that Zavada is is not playing. I think that all leads me to say we're going to lose this comfortably. I think it yeah. has that feel about it. I, th- I think it'll probably be a decent game, but as you say, our record in Adelaide is not that good, and Adelaide are on a good run, so I think that tips it in the balance of of them winning this. I think, but I think on paper at a neutral venue, this would be a this would be a damn good game. Uh, but we're missing our goal scorer, and we don't travel there well. And I, I think if, if if that happens, then um, yeah, any chance of second place is gone because they put us six points behind with 
what, five games to go? That's a bit too much. Jesus, you're positive. Any chance of second place? Only three points off. I I know, but it's our... It's our job as the Knicks to just get the hopes up and then just drag our way back to six and maybe hang out with the hang on with fingernails. Oh mate, we we are we are six points inside the six. So we we're in a really strong position when it comes to Why players. would you say that, Cameron? And we're going why? to beat Adelaide and move into second. Oh my lord, why? The, I'm um, glad that Cam has said that so that we can blame him. Oh my god, Cameron, Cameron, Cameron! Your optimism is killing everyone. Um, the on the women's side, um, the next women's team are hosting Perth at the Ring of Fire Saturday five pm. Long um, uh, Perth, uh, they're beatable in this, aren't they? If we can play like we did against Sydney, we've just beaten the top team. Uh, we put five past Canberra earlier in the season. Um, if we can put that performance out there, that's the that's the uh, the Phoenix women's team that we see. Then yeah, of course Perth is definitely beatable. So um, yeah, there's lots of reasons then therefore to be positive moving into the last three rounds of the season. Do you think we'll see Rollo fight Fight Club v V two? Oh my god. I'm down for I it. pray to God not. No, I think this is, this is also, again, ugh, this is such a negative framing, but Perth also a bit under strength. They've picked up some kind of crucial injuries over the course of the season. So Take advantage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you don't have to be sympathetic to their, to their plight. We just have to beat them. And they have also been scoring like quite scrappy goals. So I think defensively it shouldn't be too much to handle. And the fact that Perth no longer have Riley based in is a huge loss for them, huge win for us so what we're saying is play like we did last time we can we can beat Perth and get that three points that we that they uh, need to jump Newcastle um let's move on because we do have some other topics but we're gonna have to try and keep this short because Dale needs to get some sleep uh after editing this and he's already rubbing his eyes um so the uh a League expansion was announced um, today, uh, targeting both Canberra and Auckland, and also both men's and women's. Uh, this is interesting. Uh, who wants to start here and keeping their thoughts brief? Well, I think it was interesting because when this rumor started last night, I thought it was going to be that they had expansion teams lined up, that, that this was happening. But you read the detail of what they've actually announced, and it's very different. They've basically announced a plan to raise $50 million. Um, And that they're going to do that by trying to elicit interest from two teams in Canberra and Auckland. Which is not the most insane idea, but it's nowhere near the kind of done deal the rumor last night sounded like. Um, They obviously want $50 million, because who doesn't? But, I mean, the Auckland bit, if it's anything to go by, are incredibly interested in having an A-League team and don't have any money to do it. They think they could service an annual budget, but they don't have a spare $25 million to buy the license to start with. So I think there's certainly some interesting stuff to this announcement, but it's by no means an announcement of an expansion team in Auckland. It was interesting seeing um, Andrew Verman, um continually update his... Um, his article today based on different conversations he had and the one with um, the the Auckland 
uh, Ivan Vucic. Basically, in his conversation, like he just didn't seem to comprehend that there was going to be an upfront fee. It, it, like, it, it wasn't raised by APL to him. He also wasn't aware of it. Um, so it, it's it seems very, I don't know, maybe naive, maybe not being very grounded in how these things work. But you know, saying that it basically had, oh, I think you know, they could cover the, the operating costs, but you know, the upfront fee is was well beyond them, kind of implies this is a very far long way away from from being reality um, for Auckland yeah and I think I think the interesting part about that as well is the way that the league agreement works and you get given a lot of money out of the the league in order to pay your salary cap so the the running costs are actually largely covered out of the league to some extent right so obviously there is going to need to be a buy-in cost they're not just going to hand you two million dollars a year for saying sure we'll run a football team um, so I, I think it's it's quite naive to have thought there wouldn't be a buy-in, but uh, conversely, I do think it's also almost a bit rich that the asking amount is that high at the same time as exploring a promotion relegation system. I'm not saying that that's far down the track either, because there's obviously a lot of water to go under that bridge too, but imagine paying in your $25 million, getting relegated, and you've paid $20 million bucks to play second division football for no money you'd be a bit ripped off right so it's not it's not like these licenses under a pro rel um, regime are worth as much realistically because there will be clubs that come up from nothing without having to pay 20 million dollars for the privilege um, so it's it's going to be interesting to see where this actually lands yeah although i mean and realistically is pro relegation going to happen in the next decade it just seems very wow. d- distant there's certainly some time right yeah it's not like, happening next season that's for sure yeah so and that actually and that, to me that actually feels like the better way of of getting your expansion teams as well um so set up that second tier let them play for a few years until they get embedded and then do a promotion to the a-league from there rather than um then you can expand to your 14 teams then you can worry about relegation a decade from now then the league doesn't get its fifty million dollars, though, Cam, and they they want that fifty. Yep. There's actually there's there's massive positives and massive negatives around all of that, and however you however you frame it, you either you, know, you can get the fifty million dollars, but I don't necessarily believe they're going to get that fifty million dollars purely because of the um, the uh, situation that you've already outlined. I'm sure it's possible they may get someone who has. Millions and millions of dollars, a fantastic benefactor to come along and, and help uh, bankroll that whole situation. But there's not many people in New Zealand with that level of money that are prepared to invest in a sports club. So, yeah, there's 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 a lot of water to go under the bridge before I see uh, before I think we see an Auckland team in 18 months start taking the field in the A League. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting way they've gone about and kind of completely opposite to what the FFA used to in terms of, you know, FFA used to say, right, we're taking EIs and let's see who comes up um, and we'll pick from there. Whereas this is saying we want, you know, clubs in these two markets. Right, now who can we find in these two markets who's willing to stump up cash and and run a system? I can kind of see the benefit in doing that in, in that, you know, it does give, instead of wasting resource on a bunch of cities who have no, no real um, chance to sort of targeting resource and um, effort into a couple of markets where to try you know drum up you know financial backers and and, and whatnot. But 
yeah, I mean, it's really going to be interesting to see. I mean, they're talking about three months sort of process and, yeah, I don't know, 25 million is, is a lot of money. And, and, you know, it's not just to, to enter, it's, you know, as APL say, it's you're, you're buying a stake in, in the APL company. Um, so maybe there's, you know, potential long-term ability to, to sell that, that stake if you, if you need to. Um, but, yeah, it's, I mean, what do you think the, if you were put odds on it happening and, next season not next season season after what do you think it's 50 50 do you think it's oh you'd have to know the financial details but if i was just kind of looking at it from a purely footballing perspective would i buy a license it's going to cost me an arm and a leg to buy in uh, a franchise that plays in a mark that has failed twice i'd be wanting to be doing something quite different to what's happened in the past otherwise i'd be concerned that my money is going very soon. has the market failed twice or did the franchises in the market fail sorry twice? yeah the the franchises failed twice but still yeah. that is significant right well yes but there's massive pent-up demand in auckland i mean all of the financial stuff about this aside because it does read like a capital raise but all of that aside you have all these people in auckland you have all this interest hmm. for the women's side of it it would be massive you know like, I cannot be overstated what, what this would represent for the women's game in New Zealand for women. Yeah, and I think, I think I, I mean, we, we, we could argue about whether the market failed or not, because I think you could look at the crowd numbers, for example, that used to turn up to those old franchises, and you could make arguments. But I think we can all agree there should be a market big enough to sustain a club there, regardless of whether or not it was the reason it failed last time there is enough people, there's enough interest in football that you should be able to make it work. And someone should be able to tap into that market in a way that um, is sustainable. If you can make Wellington work, Auckland should be a no-brainer that you can make it work, right? And so that that's the other half of this question. And, and going back to Dale's like 50-50, I think it's higher. I think whether or not they get their $25 million is a crapshoot. But I think at this point, they've gone out and they've put a stake in the ground, and this is really the first time the APL's done that. I think they're going to get two teams in those markets, even if they have to fucking prop them up themselves. Because if they don't, they look like dicks. So they're going to go out of their way to go, yeah, yeah, pay us the $25 million over the next 25 years or whatever, if that is what gets it in the in, into the league. Because if they don't get their first two expansion teams in, they're going to look like fools so i think they're gonna make it happen even if they have to do it on unfavorable terms and they won't tell us that right they'll keep that very quiet oh yeah we found the team we found some people but i think that the more interesting question is going to be what does it mean for the phoenix and and that one is very interesting because it, it i think we can all see a lot of short-term pain for the phoenix football club in this but i think we can probably also see the massive gain for football in this country out of it, out the other side, in terms of two professional structures, uh, is is that short term pain worth it? And does it does it maybe even kill off the Phoenix or something? You know, maybe maybe there's unseen downsides to this, but it's exciting and scary at the same time. I think. Yeah, I, I I'm not sure I agree that the APL is willing or prepared to underwrite two two clubs because one the jets already still do not have an owner so they're already underwriting one do they really want to go to three i mean if they can't if they can't find an owner for the jets 
do they really find think they can find three owners? Like, I don't think I don't think they're going to have to underwrite it themselves. I think what they will do is they will find a group that's keen and give them some pretty favorable terms around those monetarily money monetary problems. You know, I don't think they're going to say if you don't have twenty five million dollars cash to pay us tomorrow, it's a no. I think they're going to go oh you've got 20 million payable over this period or you need this other concession or you need XYZ to make it work, but you guys are still going to be the owners and, and stump up some cash. I think they'll take that deal. So long as it's in the market they want and with the right business case that they want, I think the cash will be less important compared to having it fail entirely. Yeah. Although, you know, if you're building a pyramid scheme, you want the people below you to be more solid than the people above you. Don't? Like, you know, it's a, it's a, crumble, it's a crumbly foundation, <laughs> isn't it? I personally constructed a pyramid scheme, Dale. So. <laughs> I mean, it's basically I mean, what it is, right? Like, let, let's pretend it's a Ponzi scheme, though. They just need some money to keep coming in. So if they've set the stake in the ground at 50 mil and someone, you know, they managed to get 10 mil out it still keeps the wheels turning for a little bit longer than $0. Yeah, it's closer to a, a Ponzi scheme than a pyramid scheme slash the construction industry. They just need enough coming in the door to pay the last people. You know, like it's – I kind of am more on Dave's side with this one. I think it's pretty unique that they've gone out and said this in this way. I'd just like it noted that Cam and I have not implied that the APL is a Ponzi scheme <laughs> or a pyramid scheme. Um I'd like to. I'd like to note. I have said absolutely nothing about all of this entirely. Thank you very much. It is a perfectly legitimate ways to use debt to pay creditors. Anyway, is it? Well, <laughs> honestly, is. though, I I can see I can see Canberra working because there's already infrastructure there in place. There's a football club there, a professional football club there already. So it's going to be building on something that already exists within the A League structure. You think that structure has twenty five million dollars though? Because I think they're not paying their players enough if they've got 25 mil in the bank. Do people live in Canberra? Yes. About 900,000, I think. Are they all civil servants? No, yes. lobbyists. Oh, uh, yeah, if they're not a civil servant, they're a lobbyist. So. And it's yeah. super cold, right? My dad hates Canberra. That's the sum total of my knowledge. And they and they're playing green, but yeah, like there's already a structure there, so there's already a possibility that they can, they can grow on what is already in existence. And that's a five year conversation too, to be honest. Whereas right now, Auckland has nothing at all without the investment. So I think you don't think Auckland City could spin up into a relatively professional no. organisation quickly. I do, I believe yes, they could spin up into a relatively professional organisation very very quickly. However, I don't side. believe they have the level of investment required yeah. up front, like we've talked about. And I agree. I don't think. The, the the APL will be prepared to prop up another team when they're already propping up Newcastle. They're okay. already talking about the, the we comes back to the uh, finals being in Sydney because they were already after some investment that they required. And we all agree that whilst not necessarily the way we would prefer they've gone about it, there's valid reasons behind why they've decided what they've decided. In this situation, I don't believe that they will entertain propping up one of the new clubs just to get into that market i think they want into the market but they'll wait until they get the right level of investment to get into that i i think i think you're focusing too much on me saying propping up because i propping up i do not think in any way shape or form means money going from the apl to these clubs 
I think it just means less money coming into the APL. They've set a stake in the ground of a capital raise of $50 million. I think they'll take less, is what I'm saying. I think if someone says we've got $5 million, but all of this other stuff and we'll pay for ourselves for the next 20 years and here's our business case, I think they'll take it because they're better to get $5 million and the market they want than they are to worry about the $25 because the the foolish nature of what they've done here means if they don't get teams in those two markets, they look like they don't know what they're doing. And you get loans on your balance sheet. Yep. Great so for solvency. I, I, don't, I completely agree. I don't think the APL has any appetite for paying money out, but I do think they'll take less money coming in. But I, I think the interesting thing about Auckland City, because I think we if there is an Auckland team, they're the most obvious answer for an existing structure that could spin up, right? But their structure is so propped up at the moment by, um, by you know, charity trusts and a professional organization can't receive that money. It's a thing the Phoenix had to deal with um, in, in a lot of ways. And, you know, they, they were using their amateur club arrangements to cover some of those roles that were in the amateur space. You know, when, when they were playing under club banners, they could use grants to, you know, pay for various things for that team because it was ostensibly an amateur team. But when you're a full professional structure with an academy that and all of that stuff is surely going to be required and you're going to have a women's team and a men's team, they're not going to have any access as an entity to pokey money. And I don't see how Auckland City, even with all their structures and all their people and all the all the experience they have, prop up what they have at the moment without pokey money, let alone the growth that would require to be professional. So unless there's a big money name out there who's got the money to to do that, I don't know how it works. Yep, and um, there's the other side of that is the negative impact it has on the Phoenix and the destruction it has of the Phoenix's market share as well, which will have obviously flow-on effects to the bottom line coming within to APL as well. So yep. yeah, there's as I said, there's a lot of water to go under that bridge, man. There's 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 no simple answer here unless they get multiple people stepping up with a lot of money. Yeah, and, and long term, I think the argument the Phoenix would make, and, and they're probably right, is growing the market would be valid. Even if their share shrinks to 50% or less, let's say they get 40 because Auckland's bigger. Um, if the market more than doubles, that's worth it. You know, you still actually have a bigger market available to you, maybe in terms of sponsorship, in terms of ticket sales, all of that. But that market doesn't double overnight. It just doesn't. That's going to be... 5, 10, 20 years to see that market grow significantly enough to cover the shortfall. And do we think the Phoenix have enough runway in their bank account and goodwill with the existing owner group to see them through that? I don't know. Because you're, you're basically saying the Phoenix are going to have to dig into their pockets to cover that period as well. And we know it's been tight there anyway. We know the league as a whole, it was only, it was only a few months ago they were telling us they were so poor they had to sell the finals because the cash was needed immediately. <laughs> I mean, it, it seems like a house of cards in, in, a, in a variety of ways. So I'm not surprised they've gone out there with a big number and said, we need $50 million. But I think even they know they're not getting 50 mil. Well, the, the final thing I'll say in this in, to the Auckland Mystery Club is fuck you and everything you stand for. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to call your supporters group, Helena? It's got to start with K after the, the other two teams, right? Uh, bridge of size. It was nice <laughs> of the Phoenix to wear blue at the weekend, though. Was uh, was it Spoonley was telling us on the uh, commentary oh. that you know, since it was in Auckland, we're wearing blue. I see you're wearing blue tonight, so it's good. The Auckland Centre of Commerce. 
<laughs> well, um, it's certainly going to be interesting times. Hopefully we can just put that to one side and leave it to uh, those with deeper pockets than us and we shall continue on watching some football. Uh, don't forget the uh, women's team are playing at 5pm on Saturday. Um, the final thing I would add is you've probably noticed that Tracy hasn't been popping into the pod uh, particularly frequently of late. Unfortunately, when we can make it, has been clashing with her commitments to taking off uh, taking over the um, greater football community in Wellington and obviously moving on to FIFA when she gets control of that. Um, so she won't be joining us on a regular basis um, from now, but we hope to have her on occasionally uh, just to share her thoughts if she can manage to tear herself away from Miramar Rangers' sweep to victory. Uh, we'll leave it there, everybody. Thank you all for joining me and talking football amongst other things uh have a good evening and thanks for listening